everyone. You are listening to Recovery Live. I am your host, Liz Stanislawski. Um, we are the Cumberland Heights podcast where we talk to people in recovery, some staff members here at Cumberland Heights, anyone who has been impacted by addiction and has also found hope in healing through recovery. And I am super excited about today's episode, not only because it's the first one since a brief hiatus, um, thanks to me having a child and a lot of other things happening in my world, but because we're having Taylor Lynn on the show today. If you're not familiar with her, she is a singer-songwriter and the granddaughter of one of the most treasured women in country music, Loretta Lynn. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to have you. Um, you know, you are a proud alumnus of Cumberland Heights. I love how you have just recovered out loud. You have been so outspoken about your journey and your struggles. I love seeing all your stories on Instagram and your thoughts of the day and you know how it's like, everything's not hunky-dory all the time. I still have days where things suck too but you know, you've used the tools in your recovery to lead a sober life. And um, I just wanna talk a little bit about your story. I know you first got sober in 2004 and then again in 2013, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so tell us what first led you to recovery in 2004. And to, well, thank you so much much for having me and for watching all my stuff and and being a supporter of me thank you so much for that um i think it's really been important for me to be out loud and outspoken and authentic to sort of keep myself in line too um in 2004 i had been um i was a blackout drunk from the time i was 14 i um got drunk the first time I ever took a drink and it was on from there. I felt normal when I drank. I loved it. But when I found pills and, and cocaine, those were like, oh my God, I, I have finally come home. And I, um, I quickly turned to more illicit drugs, um, like crack and heroin at the end of my using. And, um, when I got arrested in the back of that cop car, I just was like, oh my God, I'm finally, I'm finally done. And I had been to Cumberland Heights before to the detox program, but I wasn't ready. Um, and I loved Cumberland Heights so much. I felt so loved there. It was a home environment. Everyone was kind, but they also didn't let you pull your, you know, your old stuff that you used to pull. So even though everyone was was kind, you always knew you knew that you needed to do what you were supposed to do, and I wasn't ready to do that. So in 2004, I went to inpatient for I think I stayed for 32 or 33 days, and I went into that little chapel. There's a little chapel in Cumberland Heights for those of you who haven't been there, and I hit my knees after a guy had sang "Amazing Grace." And I hit my knees and I just asked God to remove the obsession to drink and drug. And I felt it lifted in that little chapel. And I stayed sober for seven or about almost eight years after that. Okay. So, so then you found recovery. You felt good for a while. I mean, yeah, what? yeah, I, um, 
I got sober and they suggested, gosh, I can't remember her name now, but they suggested that I go to a halfway house after that. Um, it was called Sunshine House at the time. It was like off 12th Avenue in, in Nashville. I went to a halfway house for three months. I really felt like going to Cumberland Heights for that 33 days felt like a hundred years, you know, when you're getting sober, you're like, oh my God, 33 days, what are you talking about? But each day that was added on was another day of sort of that safety net for me. And um, I went to the halfway house, like I said, for about 90 days. I did the aftercare program at Cumberland Heights. And I think all of those things really rooted the seed of recovery for me. And so then for eight years, I did the work, you know, they, you said something about a toolbox earlier, and I was introduced to that whole toolbox idea in treatment. And, and so I, uh, scout, turn it down, just leave it in there, Liz, just leave it all in there. This is real life. This is it y'all for anybody listening. This is it. These are the promises of sobriety coming true. Taking your kids everywhere and trying to do recovery podcasts and sound like you've got it together when you don't always have it together. So when I had my first son, um, I was eight years sober. I had my first son and they gave me the Vicodin. I had a C-section and, and they gave me the Vicodin and I took it like it was prescribed. You know, I was in a a 12-step program and I took it like it was prescribed and I was okay until I had postpartum and they prescribed Adderall. So I am a poster child of, I'm a poster child for ADHD. And so everyone has tried to prescribe me Adderall. I am not a person who can take Adderall. I eat Adderall like candy if given to me, but I had postpartum And I wasn't continuing to do the things that I had done for eight years to stay sober. You know, I sort of just went into this. I mean, you know what it's like, Liz, you've got a new baby and your mind's sort of all over the place. And no longer is your recovery first in your mind. This baby is, and this baby is everything. And you lose that time to pray. Like there is no meditation time. There is none of the stuff you think. Um, So they gave me the Adderall a couple months after True was born. And within a week, I was, you know, I was prescribed three a day or something. And I was eating five, three times a day or, you know, something like that. And then we moved to Seattle during that time. And nobody, none of my friends that were in recovery could see me or know really what was going on. And I just, it was worse than it ever. I did I was a worse person in that six months of just an Adderall relapse than I was on crack and heroin in my mind, because now I had children and a husband and, you know, I was texting with another guy there at the end and breastfeeding my baby, you know, so much Adderall. And you just are like, oh my God, I want to kill myself. Like, I am a piece of crap. I just want to kill myself. And um, did you realize it was happening while it was happening or or did you, were you like, oh, I was prescribed this. I'm okay. You know, what a great question. What a great question. Um, I think we justify all of it. Right. I mean, my husband didn't know what addiction looked like and he was new to me. I'd only known him a month when we got engaged. So he had never seen 
me using, which is a nightmare. But he just met this woman that was in recovery, you know? And so he didn't know what it looked like. And yeah, I thought, well, the woman that gave it to me was, worked with people in addiction, she said, and she was a postpartum nurse. So I thought, okay, well, this can't be too bad to breastfeed with because she's a postpartum nurse. And then you justify, and then you always think that you're the exception to the rule too. Well, of course people don't know. I can't, I need to take more. I've got ADHD worse than anybody. So I need to take more than they prescribed because I need it so much more. And I have a new baby and I'm exhausted and I'm fat and I need to lose weight. And there's so much to unpack and I don't have any friends and I have stuff I need to get done. And you just, it turns into this whirlwind. And then you think you hate your spouse because you blame it on somebody else. So then you're reaching out to another person to get fulfilled because the drugs really aren't working as well as they were working yesterday, but you can't get your hands on something new. And so you use the man and that addiction, you know, then you find out that you're a love addict too, you know, just like, you know, we're crazy in our heads for sure. So I justified it until my husband found the text. I mean, it wasn't the behavior of the addict as far as drugs were concerned, it was the behavior of the addict of a wife that cheated that, Mm -hmm. that busted, that busted my game up. Yeah. Because I mean, taking the pills, that's just a symptom of your addiction, right? Oh, all the stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. All that is but a symptom. I mean, I have to work daily. That's that craziness happens all the time. And that's why I have to stay kind of right in the middle of the boat. And like I I mentioned, love addiction, I ended up in 2013 going back to a all women's treatment center in Seattle. And there, you know, you've had enough recovery under your belt. You've been to to Cumberland Heights, you know, you've done the work. So you have these seeds planted and, and you know, a lot of the information but you go in and you start learning more information. And that's where I learned, you know, that all the things that the symptom, the financial stuff that I would do, you know, the financial ruin that I would bring to our family. My husband had an amazing job at Amazon and I would spend everything we had, no matter if he was making $500,000 a year or $50,000 a year. Like I would spend it no matter what to all of it. Mm -hmm. And the love addiction piece, I realized that in my sobriety for those eight years, and I'm a singer, that I would use applause and men's attention to fill that void too. So I wasn't doing all the work that I could, but you know, it just takes a long time to go, oh my gosh, I mean, this stuff is deep and real. And you work so long trying to fight the shame of the relapse, the using, what you've done to other people, that it takes a long time to kind of get through that stuff, to get to that deep spot inside where you can go, oh, this is why I do this. This is this is the pain that I have here. This is, you know, what I'm... Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I wanted to ask you too, you know, you had a little different situation because you're kind of in the spotlight. You're out there, you're a singer, songwriter, you're the granddaughter of a very famous woman. Did you feel like your addiction was kind of in the spotlight or that you were kind of under more scrutiny than other people? And how did you deal with that? Well, I think 
I'm 44. So when, um, when I was in the height of my addiction, there wasn't all the social media that there was today. And so there was nobody really, I just didn't do a lot with myself in the height of my addiction. Um, when I got my record deal, I had a trio for a while and, and we had some songs on the radio. They were called Stealing Angels. It was with uh, John Wayne's granddaughter, Jennifer Wayne and Caroline Hobby, who has an amazing podcast. Um, I think it's called Get Real with Caroline. I'm terrible at what the names and stuff are, but <laughs> Caroline Hobby, she's amazing. Um, and it was a it was a little bit of a balance to to talk about it then. We had management and a label and so they tried to protect me, but it, I was surrounded by drugs and alcohol. They, not with the girls, but like in that arena, there were drugs and alcohol all the time. When I relapsed, I was no longer with the trio because I got pregnant. And so in that relapse, I felt actually very alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get on social media and talk about the shame was so incredibly deep that I just retreated for months probably and I think that that's what has made me so open about how may I say shitty days can be and how you can still stay sober through that and when you want to drink that's so freaking normal because we're alcoholics (laughs) and I think that we get uncomfortable when we have those using dreams or think that we want to listen I just did a concert at my grandmother's ranch where I like try to manage the whole thing you know usually I just go and sing songs but this is so it's got family of origin issues I got daddy issues involved in it I'm trying to show up for my grandmother and and be respectful to her and pay homage to her and, and be a good performer I'm trying to help everybody get settled People are drinking. People are having a great time. They're out camping. And I'm manic and crazy. And I and it makes you want to have an escape. And that's so mm. normal. But we have, like you said, those toolboxes where I was able to slip away, hit my knees, do my prayers, call another alcoholic, do a short reading, and sort of get back in my body and get centered and go put on a great show and be joy for other people and be of service it's I sort of think of it as service now and it's a tricky thing but there are there is a solution but you you really have to do the work diligently and on a daily basis Mm -hmm. yeah you know and you mentioned your grandmother how how did grandma feel through all of this this kind of tornado that that you were going through I mean was she supportive were you afraid of disappointing her you know The greatest gift my grandmother ever gave me was writing country songs about my grandfather and them turning into hits. Like, don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind or, you know, fighting for her man. You ain't woman enough. Or I said it to her last night. She said, you know, your mommy used to call me all the time when you were out in trouble. And she'd say, what are we going to do with her? What are we going to do with her? And she said, there's really nothing we can do with her, but let's just go get her. And my grandmother was the one that paid for my first treatment center. I went to um, 
Sierra Tucson when I was 19, and she was the the one that paid for that. You know, Sierra Tucson is a prize. It plays to go. <laughs> um, and so she totally supported that. But she's so wonderful about me living out loud in sobriety now. You know, I think I only embarrassed her actually one time, and I was sober, and I talked about on stage in a funny way being um, an ex-crack addict. And she said, you've got to remember that when you're on stage and you're doing a concert, that country music is about family at the end of the day. And I love that you are in recovery and you're living this way. But if you're attaching my name to it, just just make sure that you're talking about stuff in a respectful way. So it's great for me when I'm able to do podcasts about recovery or speak on my social media in a way that's about wording it correctly and and then going out and singing her music and putting on a show you know I've really had to work on where is it appropriate to Mm -hmm. talk about the drug part of everything you know I mean it seems like the alcoholism is a little better tolerated but like the the addiction part that and especially when you talk about meth and crack and here you know when you talk about those harder drugs, there's a stigma that's still attached to that stuff where people don't understand that it was a disease, but we've got a job to do. I think as, as sober, as a sober woman, I have a job to do of, you know, what is that? What does that look like? Is it trashy going out saying, you know, well, I'm a crackhead, you know, like, does that help anybody? I don't know. It might help somebody that's younger, but maybe there's a woman that's my age, that's 44 and is a mom and got kid and she's sneaking out in the garage doing it. Does she want to, is that the, am I going to help her being that way? Right. And it's, it's so interesting too, that, you know, in country music, we can sing about getting drunk over heartbreak and all of that's okay. But you know, the legal stuff, no, that's bad. Like it's so stigmatized where it's like alcohol can ruin many more lives than, you know, even crack. I mean, it doesn't matter the substance. Yeah. I mean, you've seen alcohol withdrawals are, you see, I never think that I'd never went through alcohol withdrawal because I would do the drugs. So, I mean, those alcohol withdrawals, watching people go through that is horrific, much more so than someone who's trying to get off cocaine. And now heroin, that's a pretty bad deal, but yeah, absolutely. I have been through that. Yeah. So yeah. that's, I mean, that's a terrible but they're kind of hand in hand, that alcohol in here. I mean, it's it's all bad. You know, it's all it's all such a travesty, but also just it's a beautiful thing too, because I think those of us who are alcoholics and addicts who can recover and stay sober, our lives are so much better than than many drink you know normal people that I know because we are trying so dang hard to be better versions of ourselves to be the best versions of ourselves and we're out there you know saying we're sorry and trying to make things right and and not stealing or you know just trying to do the right thing and we wouldn't know that if we weren't stripped of the things that made us not feel yeah. So, I mean, how do you stay sober today? And do you think there was something that clicked the, you know, after your relapse that was, was different than maybe the first time something that, you know, was like, okay, 
I, I got it this time. Or, I mean, still, honestly, is it one day at a time for you? T- tell me a little bit about how you stay sober. You know, I think in my last um, sobriety, the eight years that I was sober before, and I spoke on this a touch, but I I did not have the desire to drink and drug anymore. Like it was lifted from me. What I guess I didn't know is that I was using uh, that love addiction, the men to fill that void. And so when I got sober this time, there was nothing outside of myself that I could do to make it any better. If I wanted to stay married, all my phones and everything were on display. Like I was sort of in a, an account for a little while being held accountable for all my actions. And so I wanted to drink every day, even after I went to rehab again, I I wanted to use, like I wanted to get outside. Of, I wanted to get outside myself. And before I didn't think that I would ever relapse. And in this sobriety, I think, oh, it could happen today. I always think if I don't hit my knees and pray, if I don't call another alcoholic, if I don't do my reading, if I don't work, you know, with another alcoholic and, and try to help them, then today might be the day that I decide it's a real good idea to smoke a joint because I hate smoking pot. So like, it might be a good idea to take some of those pot gummies or whatever that everybody's taking now that you could trick yourself into thinking that maybe you're just taking some CBD. Like that's where I am right now in my life. So I have to work really hard at not losing my prayer life, you know, because at the end of the day, it's between me and God. Mm. Nobody else can see in my mind. Nobody else knows what's going on in here. So I have to get really clear with God and I have to do the things that I learned to do in the very beginning. I have to do all of those today, the very same way and keep it really simple. It's not about like buying some self-help book and getting all involved in, I need therapy to help me, you know, work on my childhood stuff, but to stay sober, it's really hitting my knees in the morning, praying, calling another alcoholic and addict, reading something that has to do with recovery and then being of service in some way. I mean, that is it. And we are, what does it say? You know, we're, crazy people that can mess up such a simple, simple, basic way of life. So I have to keep it really simple. That's a long answer to like a quick question. Hey, it's a great answer. No. And I think a lot of people can relate to everything you just said. Um, We're coming up to the podcast, the part in the podcast we like to call the big two, where we talk about one, your greatest struggle in recovery and be your greatest triumph. So let's start with your greatest uh, struggle in recovery. And what do you mean by that? Like, um, you know, in in your process of being sober, maybe you went through something where it was really hard maybe to, you know, get through it with without using substances or, you know, you really, you've, you thought about maybe using again because you're like, I don't know this, I'm really going through a hard time. Or even if you just went through a period where things are stressful and you're like, I really want to use and you just kind of had to hang on every day to not. So either way you want to look at it. <laughs> um, I think that the two things that immediately come to mind are actually an answer to the struggle and the triumph at the same time, if I can answer you like that. Um, 
when I got pregnant with my second son, of course, I was scared to death because I knew I'd have to have a C-section. And I was, I didn't even, I couldn't fathom how I was going to do that without narcotics. I mean, especially in the hospital, like I just couldn't, I, I was so scared and I was in the back of my mind I wanted it to hurt so bad that I could have narcotics. And in the front of my mind, I wanted it to not hurt at all. So I could say no. And so that devil inside, when I went into the hospital room and they're about to cut you open and you know, the choice is right after they give you the baby and you go into the OR, like, you know, this is it. This is last time. This is where they gave me the Delata and nobody stopped me because I'll be in there by myself. Like, this is where the rubber meets the road. And that just like, oh my God, I'm going to want it. I'm going to want it. I'm going to want it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so that was such a struggle, but getting through that birth with no narcotics and not having any in the hospital and just relying on God and all my people around me and making sure I was surrounded with people that knew what my intentions were and my doctor He's in a recovery program too on the other side. He's married to an alcoholic. And so he knew. And so, and just having prayer, I had the whole team praying. So it was like this struggle, but it was also this great triumph because nothing happened. I mean, I held tighter to God during that time. And um, the next thing is losing my mom three years ago um, tomorrow it, during this, this week after a concert that we did, the concert that I just did. She, um, she watched the concert. She was in the front row and she was loving it and she was crying. And my dad and I sang together and she was having a blast. And she drove back home to Franklin. We're an hour outside of Franklin and she drove home and she was raising my nephew. He was six years old. She got my grandmother and my nephew in the house. And then she laid down and had a heart attack and died. And I was flying out to Detroit to get to Canada. We had stopped in Detroit and I got the call that she died that very next morning. I left the house at 4.30 for a 6 a.m. flight and turning around. And my mom was everything to me. You know, she was a single mom until I was eight. So there just was all this stuff. And that was horrific. I mean, that hurt worse than anything I could have ever imagined or explained to anyone. And I did. I wanted to escape then. And I wanted to escape in different ways, even if it wasn't with drugs and alcohol, I wanted to do what I used to do. And I did. I spent a bunch of money, like money I didn't have. I'm talking like thousands of dollars to not feel. So there was the struggle and where it could have really led to something bad. But also the triumph in that is that I didn't relapse. I didn't pick up at a time where I was in a lot of pain and I I felt even closer to God after a period of time than I had before. I now also have this wonderful spiritual relationship with my mother that that has no none of that icky stuff that we deal with, you know, when we come in and we got our mama stuff to deal with. So now all that's kind of out the window and I I get that gift. So mm-hmm. That's amazing. I'm so sorry to hear about that. And I know those, those the anniversaries are really tough. Um, oh my God. You feel are, it. You feel it. Yeah. Yeah, you do. But also you've got your mom in heaven now. I mean, that's, um, I believe in, you know, I'm from the Bible belt. So Jesus is my BFF. Yeah. And so you, 
So now you're just like, okay, not only is Jesus up there watching everything I do, now I got mama on the line. So it's kind of, you know, it's actually probably made me a better person, a sober person in a way, because I feel like I've got more her to talk to in a way that I didn't before. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Taylor, it was so great talking to you. Um, like I said, I just love following you on social media, um, your journey. You're so candid talking about recovery and the struggles and the ups and downs. I think you're such an inspiration to so many people. Um, is there anything else, any final thoughts that you want to add before we end this podcast today? Thank you so much. You know, I, I think that I've said everything Thing. No, I don't have any final thoughts with us right now, except I love you and God loves you. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm so grateful that you asked me to do this. And I really appreciate you um, validating me being candid because it's scary sometimes. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, and I think that's kind of a misconception people have that once you get sober, you know, you might be on that pink cloud for a while, but things, it doesn't equate happiness all the time and you have to navigate this new world, but without drugs and alcohol. But you know that if you turn to that, you know, substance again, things are going to be way worse than, than they are. Oh, now. I mean, your problems are nothing compared to what they would be if right. you were using. Right. I mean, you can't find a solution to a problem if you're out of your mind. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much. Um, you know, we'll probably be bugging you again because you're such a great friend of Cumberland like, Heights. You're <laughs> adorable. I love Cumberland Heights. I mean, I found me my first husband in Cumberland Heights, which you're not oh. supposed to do. Okay. <laughs> So I'll leave you with the final thought. If you're thinking about going to Cumberland Heights, that it is not a place to pick up a husband, okay? <laughs> they frown upon it. They will kick you out. Yeah. You can edit that last part if you want to. <laughs> okay. Well, come back and visit us sometime. They're starting to lift some COVID restrictions, so we love oh, to good. I will. Yeah, I shared with a group of women there a couple years ago. That's the last time I've been there. It was awesome. I can't believe how much it's changed. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we would love to have you come back and share. And um, it's been such a pleasure talking with you and good luck in everything you do in your music career and your family. Um, but I'm sure we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks Liz, so much. Thank you, Ron. Thank you everybody Bye. for listening. Um, have a great day and be well. Be well. Bye y'all. Bye-bye. Recovery life.